Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. Hi, thanks for joining me this Wednesday, January 24th. Um, I just want to let you know, while I will be here tomorrow, I will not be here Friday. I'm going to be at my favorite place in the whole world. I'm going to be at the doctor's because, you know, follow-ups, tests, good things, good things. Uh, God, it's so great getting old. (laughs) Anyway, uh, Jennifer Weigel, who... uh, you guys, I don't think, have heard on this radio station, at least not for a very long time, uh, Jennifer Weigel. Uh, she used to be Mancow Muller's um, co-host for a very long time. Uh, Jennifer Weigel is going to be filling in for me this Friday. So that should be interesting. little change of pace here at WCPT, and I'm sure you will welcome her. Uh, thank you very much, Jennifer, for allowing me to get a couple of tests under my belt. You know, I was looking at my calendar, and the number of doctor appointments, you know, usually, you know, you know, once in a while you'll hear me take off. Like at the beginning of the month, I had some surgery and some other stuff. Um, but for every time I actually take off work for a doctor's appointment, Figure there were probably eight different doctor's appointments that I went to uh, in the morning before starting this show. <clears throat> I guess that means I'm in really good shape, huh? Because I've got all these doctors watching all these different <laughs> aspects of my life. Uh, well, you know what? Sometimes people say how tough it is to grow older and stuff does happen. Stuff does happen that you never could have imagined when you were younger, but, and it's a big, but after having gone through cancer, um, you realize that even a life that maybe isn't perfectly healthy or even perfectly happy, is still a life that's very much worth living. So no pity party for me. I'm doing just fine. Thank you very much. And uh, I appreciate Jennifer Weigel allowing me to continue to be just fine by going to get a couple of tests done on Friday. Yahoo. Okay, you may have just heard Joe Biden talk if you are what if you like to watch cable news or if, like me, you're a fan of C-SPAN, because who isn't? Uh, President Biden made a rousing address before uh, the United Auto Workers. And the United Auto Workers made a rousing endorsement of Joe Biden. Uh, Sean Fain, the UAW president, uh, called Donald Trump, said Donald Trump was a scab said Donald Trump is a billionaire, and that's who Donald Trump represents, billionaires. Joe Biden, on the other hand, is a blue-collar guy, blue-collar Biden. Uh, Fain also pointed out that Trump did his best to screw over unions when he was in office. And obviously, that is not Joe Biden, the first president in modern history to walk a picket line 
when UAW workers were striking. So they have gotten ahead of the other major organizations and they have come out and endorsed Joe Biden to be the next president of the United States. Joe Biden spoke to UAW leadership and rank and file in a rousing speech today. I'm not going to bring you the whole thing, but listen to this. Here's a couple of minutes of it. It's great to be home. One of the best unions in the world. You look out for one another. The whole country, the whole country benefits from what you do. You know, please take a seat if you have one. You're tough as they come, starting with your president, Sean Fain, a leader with backbone, a backbone like a ramrod. I don't know where he is, but he is. Together, we're proving what I've always believed. Wall Street didn't build America. The middle class built America. And unions built the middle class. That's a fact. Look, I kept my commitment to be the most pro-union president ever. I'm proud you have my back. Let me just say I'm honored to have your back and you have mine. That's the deal. It comes down to seeing the world the same way. It's not complicated. You know, my dad, who never went to college, was the smartest, toughest, most gracious man I knew, who managed a car dealership for the bulk of my life, taught me a very important lesson. He'd say, Joey, this is God's truth. A job is about a lot more than a paycheck. It's about decency. It's about your dignity. It's about your place in the community. It's about being able to look your kid in the eye and say, honey, it's going to be okay and mean it and mean it. Folks, that's what the UAW is all about, and it's always been that way. Joe Biden, you know, when that guy's on fire, he's on fire. Nobody will ever say that he is the world's best orator. But, you know, when he talks, he's talking from his heart. And that is that's really important. So UAW coming out with a big endorsement of uh, the president and a uh, some not very nice words, not very nice words for Joe Biden. No, 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 no. Um, and he says uh, Brad from Elk Grove Village is uh, calling in to talk about uh, Donald Trump and Nikki Haley, which is I, w- I was just segueing to. So let's start with Brad. Hey, Brad, how are you? Oh, good. Just uh, on pins and needles about the election, but I I really think Donald Trump's intolerance for Nikki Haley, besides being misogynistic, um, is just a very clear indication called dictatorial, literally and tyrannical. He's going to be if he becomes president. Yeah, it's like he's practicing, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, and he's he's, he's basically um, he can't he can't contain himself to be a how would I put it a mature mm-hmm. professional um, uh, 
I, I conciliatory is in his, his vocabulary, but just he is a halfway psychopathic, I think. Yes. And, and do we want, as bad as he was before, we, I think he's I think he's even worse now. Sure, and and do we want that kind of a person with their with their with the nuclear football so close? Yeah. And you know, Brad, it really makes me mad. Just today there's been a lot of reporting about how um Wall Street and um, powerful CEOs like Jamie Dimon from J.P. Morgan, that they're starting to, if not outright support Trump, they're like making excuses for him. Like, oh, you know, he did some things last time that were really good. He would do a lot of uh, good things for stockholders. Uh, you know, they're starting to um, they're starting to get to a place where. They're almost ready to endorse a guy who has said that he wants to make the executive branch much more powerful than the congressional, the legislative branch or the judicial branch. He wants to get rid of all civil servants. He wants only people in government who are loyal to him. He wants to take the Department of Justice and make it an arm of revenge against those who have slighted him. Uh, I don't understand. You know, I know when you're a CEO, you have to kind of not anger anybody high up in government because they'll, they can, reper- the repercussions for your company can be bad. But when you've got somebody like Donald Trump, I think that's an exception to that rule. I don't think you stay neutral or try to compliment a guy who wants to be the next Vladimir Putin. You know, we'll see how Jamie Dimon likes it if Trump gets in office and and Jamie Dimon or Citibank or J.P. Morgan, if they do something that Donald Trump doesn't like and then he goes after him. Well, then all of a sudden it's going to be, oh, my God, he's not he's not following the rule of law. Well, yeah, big surprise. Like you didn't know who he was. Yeah. And my 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 thing is I go right back to 1933. And the enabling law, Hitler got to make him dictator, and Trump wants to do the same thing. Mm-hmm. I agree. And he he tells he tells us that he's not hiding it. It's not a secret. You know, he's it's not that he's you know setting himself up to pull a fast one. He's right out there with it. You know, this is what I'm going to do. This is how I'm going to take apart government. This is how I'm going to use government to avenge my enemies. He couldn't be any more clear. Yeah, if you pardon my French, but if you don't, uh, if you don't bust his hindquarters, everything else is going to be seen as. Everybody else is going to be seen as an enemy. Yeah, yeah. Bottom line. Mm-hmm. And I hope, I don't care if she loses South Carolina, I hope Nikki Haley stays in this campaign um, for a couple of reasons. Because, it, you know, I've read some things that say that at least half of the people who are supporting Nikki Haley really don't like Trump. It's not like they're, you know, you hear a lot of people say, well, I'll vote for a Republican no matter who it is. 
um, a lot of the people who support Nikki Haley have said that they will vote for Joe Biden if it is a Trump Biden contest. And also, too, you know, Chris Christie said he was still going to fight the good fight, but we haven't heard much from him since he withdrew from the presidential race. And uh, Nikki Haley is still in it. She is still annoying Trump on a daily basis. And somebody needs to do that. <laughs> and, and maybe just maybe we'll get a much better look at Trump's. Trump is going to be, uh, he's going to give up just how, how would I say it, just how pervertedly hateful he is. Yeah. Well, he um, he's not hiding it. And um, I think, you know, I think that the people who will forgive him anything are always going to be with him. But I think that the people who are with him because they perceive him as being um, in the right position on an issue they care about it, care about. I think those people are going to have to really, really do some soul searching um, to see if, you know, the one issue they care about is worth all of the pain and havoc and damage that he will do to our democracy and our society. I just don't see how that equation adds up for anybody. I really don't. Brad, thank you so much for the call. Uh, interesting observation. Um, speaking of, you know, uh, the Nikki Haley, Donald Trump, New Hampshire contest. Sure, Donald Trump won. We knew that was going to happen. But, um, you know, Haley had decent support. She had uh, decent support. And she now moves on to South Carolina. Um, I don't know if you saw when Trump um, was congratulating himself on winning New Hampshire. Standing behind him was Tim Scott. Tim Scott wouldn't be a senator if it weren't for Nikki Haley. And yet the second Tim Scott pulled out of the race, uh, he started sucking up to Trump big time to try to get that vice presidential nod. He endorsed Trump immediately. So did DeSantis, which is... You know, perhaps not as shocking. Um, but uh, Tim Scott was standing there in New Hampshire. Now, not South Carolina, a state Tim Scott represents. He was in New Hampshire and he was right there behind Donald Trump. And uh, Donald Trump, I want to share this paragraph with you. Uh, the Washington Post wrote about the Trump victory in New Hampshire Listen to this paragraph, though. In victory, however, Trump was anything but gracious. On stage, he was angry, angry that Haley, the former ambassador to the United Nations and former governor of South Carolina, had delivered her post-election remarks before him and that they had the air of a victory speech. Angry that she vowed to keep her campaign going against the odds. Trump was petulant and dismissive barely able to enjoy the clear victory he had posted. The more Haley carries the fight forward, the more likely it is to irritate him. And I say that right there, folks, is reasonable alone to hope that Nikki Haley stays in this race as long as humanly possible. 
Uh, let's go uh, back to the phone lines. Uh, Stephen is calling in from Chicago. Hey, Stephen, go ahead. Hello. Yeah. Hi. Go ahead. Have you ever have you ever read the book American Pharaoh? Uh, no. It's a book. It's a couple of. It's a trip reporter and a New York Times reporter. I can't remember the names, but it's about the rise of Richard J. Daley to power in Chicago and how he worked his way up through all the county positions, the city positions, and through the Democratic Party organization. That by the time he became mayor, he knew where every nut and bolt of government and the party organization was, who was doing what, to whom, and for how much. He knew every little detail of what was going on, you know, in Chicago and Cook County. And in that sense, Biden kind of reminds reminds me of him and that he's been in D.C. for so long. He knows where every little facet of D.C. is and, you know, who's, you know, where the levers of power are. He's what been elected to the Senate, what, six times? Is that correct? Something like that. Six times he's been elected as a senator. He's been on three winning national tickets. He's a cagey old guy. I don't. I don't buy this stuff for a moment. That that you know he's going soft in the brain. He's got a little bit of a stuttering problem that rears up every now and then. But he knows everything that's going on, and I think he understands you know the rhythm of a political campaign. And for, for all the Democrats that are that are moaning that he should be, you know, piling on Trump and being more critical. I think he's saving it for a more critical time when people are paying more attention to the race. Yeah. And also, it seems to me there's been a little bit of change in the Biden campaign recently where they've realized that one of, if not their biggest winning issue in 2024 is going to be female autonomy, the right of a woman to make a decision about her body in the doctor's office without the government butting in. I've noticed that more and more that is um, a big focus of some of his speeches and Kamala Harris's speeches as well. And I think that's uh, that's re- that's a real winner. But I think I think you're right. I think that um you know, he makes remarks about Trump from from time to time. But once whenever the point is reached where Nikki Haley does finally bring an end to her campaign, um, I think then we'll see more of uh, Joe Biden attacking Donald Trump directly. I was walking around Milwaukee a couple of days after the Dobbs decision came down. I was walking around downtown Milwaukee with friends up there. And then all of a sudden this crowd of uh, like like 2,500 people came marching down the street. I was, it was mostly female. It was about 80, 90% female. And they were holding up signs blaming the Republicans and the Supreme Court for the decision. And they were livid. They were screaming, angry. They were so mad. And I saw that. And when I heard all these reports about a red wave coming in the midterms in 22, I, I thought, that's not going to happen. Not after mm-hmm. what I witnessed. And, you know, I mean, I was just Milwaukee, but I was hearing stuff like from individual women, how incensed they were. And, and I thought, yeah. it's just not going to happen. And it didn't. I agree. Oops, I think uh, he, uh, Stephen was, Stephen, you're kind of dropping out there. Um, thanks for the call. I appreciate you uh, reaching out to us from your car. Uh, let's go back to the phone lines. Jim's calling in from Chicago. Hey, Jim, how are you? Hi, Joan. I hope that Bobby is doing good because it snowed like a maniac where he was at. I mean, it was three or four feet of snow, so I hope we yeah. hear from him. By, well, last time I talked to him, he said yeah. he had supplies because he fully expected to be snowed in. Well, it was really, it really was a freak, or, or it was like three or four feet, so 
anyway, I hope he's okay up there. What do you got, Friday? Will you take him up Friday? Is that the yeah, thing? Yeah, I got to have a couple of medical tests, and I could only schedule them for the afternoon. Usually, I'll yeah, sure. hold out until yeah, I can get them done in the morning. But yeah. maybe, maybe better, maybe better fortune with that with a Friday afternoon. Anyway, Joan, I was just say I was heartened by the writing vote for Biden in New Hampshire, and I hope I'm not going. I'm not getting too enthusiastic about it, but I thought that that was kind of remarkable to get the people to write in his name, you know, when they don't talk about yeah. the enthusiasm for Joe Biden. But I thought that was remarkable because yeah, uh, I, I, have so the, yeah, I have all the enthusiasm in the world for him. I I think he could be uh, one of our greatest presidents, Joe, going through history. Anyway, good luck at Freddie and thanks, Joe. Thanks. Bye-bye. Oh, um, Jim, we have Bobby on the line. Bobby? Uh, Jim was just asking how you were doing with this most recent bad weather. We're worried about you. You know, here at WCPT, we're all like a family here. How are you doing? Well, I hope you're going to be okay. Ah, you know, I keep ticking. You can't get rid of me. Well, I don't know if they're going to get rid of me or not, but I'm not quite dead yet. But, um, (laughs) uh, well, I'm looking out the window right now and, uh, this stuff is really melting fast. I am oh, amazed. Thank goodness. I went, uh, it, uh, it stopped snowing around noon on Saturday. And I went, I, I felt reckless and I went in the downtown uh, Monday morning. How and was it? Even. Even the smallest of the side streets were mostly only wet. Oh. I didn't. I, I did not find an unplowed street anywhere I went. I I couldn't believe it. That's wonderful. I'm so glad to hear that. You know, um, it really matters a lot, especially. You know, I was reading an article. I mean about people who are in wheelchairs or people who have disabilities, it's really, you know, it's really hard for them to be mobile in a situation where, like, the snow isn't cleared and sidewalks aren't cleared. It's um, it's really important for us elders, too. Yeah, yeah. Oh, one last thing. Yeah. Uh, yeah, uh. Trump is still a lump of crap. <laughs> I believe that is the scientific uh, explanation. If you, if you don't believe me, just listen to him sometime. He'll tell you. Yeah, really? Yeah. Anyway, that's the, uh, that's the report from the old snow globe. <laughs> well, I'm glad the snow globe uh is uh, treating you well and that you are doing fine, Bobby. I'm well, glad tell, you got tell, through this latest yeah. bad weather. Tell James in Chicago everything's okay out here. Yes, I'm sure Jim is listening. So now we're all reassured that we have you um, and that you are safe, and I'm glad to hear it. Have a good one. You too. Um, I uh, think it is a good idea for us to take a break. And uh, when we return, we are going to be talking politics. I know. Shocking, isn't it? (laughs) We'll be uh, right back after this. 
Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. We are joined by Professor Emeritus Kent Redfield, Professor Emeritus of Political Science from the University of Illinois at Springfield. And, um, you know, Kent, I'm sorry we asked you because there's no politics, there's no political science going on. Everything has been quiet for months so I just don't know what we're going to talk about. You know, sometimes, Kent, I feel like my head is exploding. No, I understand. Do you ever do you ever feel like it's you can't keep track of everything? I mean, we, we yell at the news media uh, because, you know, outrageous things happen and it gets short shrift in reporting because it's on to the new thing. But. When is this when is this fire hose going to end? Is it is it going to take the demise of the crazy far ultra right wing Republican Party before all before politics goes back to what it used to be when I was a young adult? Well, I'm I'm not sure I want necessarily you know, whatever was normal in Illinois when I got here in the 70s, I'm not sure I want to go back to. But, you know, I, I'd like to I'd like to think we can get to a better politics. But, uh, you know, it has certainly been insane, uh, you know, for the last, uh, you know, 20 years. It just has been getting worse and worse. But, uh, you know, I'd like to think we've got, you know, that there's there's a better politics out there rather than going back particularly to old Illinois politics. Whether you're talking about Illinois politics or national politics, what has to happen for us to regain those more sane times? Oh, I, I think you've got to get people engaged in politics. I think you do that in, you know, locally in the neighborhoods. You know, I think that's, you know, that's the only way is to get people is to get people involved. And, and when you've got a politics that turns people off because it's it's corrupt or it's not responsive, then people tune out. And that leaves the playing field open to, you know, people who are either, you know, dishonest or malevolent. So, you know, we've got to build a politics uh, that gets young people engaged, that gets people, uh, you know, back into thinking about, uh, uh, you know, policies that serve people rather than, uh, you know, what's what's been going on in the country. And, you know, I, I don't I don't think the good old days are are all that good. We've got to be looking for a better future. Well, we've seen a change in our national politics where there are a small number of people who seem to care about getting television time and doing or saying something outrageous so that they become more famous. Maybe they fundraise off of it. Um, and rather than that, rather than people getting sick of that, that seems in, to be trickling down. I was just reading a newsletter about um, there was a meeting of the Chicago City Council this morning, and one of the morning newsletters I get was saying that they were really concerned that the city council meeting would be chaotic because the feeling was that there were some members of the city council that would do or say things just to get attention, not to move the council toward any kind of good governance. 
It seems like that idea of being outrageous to get famous and get attention is more present than ever before, Kent. What do we do right here, right now? Oh, yeah, I mean, obviously, there are just a lot more microphones out there that allow people to get on social media, to get on all of the different kinds of, of uh, you know, cable, Internet kinds of things. You know, so if you're into performance art uh, or trying to do a hustle and make money out of politics, then, you know, there certainly are a lot more avenues out there. And, you know, what what you have to do is elect people who are interested in solving problems and in serving constituents. And so if you've got local leaders that are either interested in making a buck or, uh, you know, just, you know, exercising power in their little sandbox, uh, you know, then you don't get any improvement. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, the structure is I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not one of these people says blow it up. The structure, you know, the idea of having representative government uh, with uh, leaders that listen to constituents and constituents that, you know, trust and respect leaders because the leaders perform, you know, that's that's where you need to go. I, I don't want to get in a situation where you say, well, we just need to blow it up. Let's look for a new model. Maybe the guy in Turkey or the guy in, you know, Hungary has got a better idea than, the, than uh, you know, the American constitutional system. Uh, so, you know, I, I think you can make it work. I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm not seeing the leadership at the top uh, that, you know, really can, you know, engage the public and, and you know, get to get to solutions. I think that's what people care about, you know, more than anything else is, you know, People that listen to them and try to solve their problems. Let's let's focus on Illinois for a few minutes. Um, Democrats are dominant. Do you see that continuing? What uh, do you see when you look forward for the state of Illinois? Uh, the Democrats are are in a dominant position. They're you know politically because you know the demographics have changed. Northeastern Illinois grew during the, you know, 1990 to 2010, you know, gained a ton of population that was primarily uh, Hispanic, Asian, uh, you know, some, uh, you know, black growth. Uh, But, you know, that really, the demographics really changed uh, and became more moderate. Uh, We got uh, the Democrats have drawn the last three uh, congressional or uh, legislative maps. That gives them a huge advantage. And now, if we're through the billionaire kind of era of Illinois politics, then the funding base of the Democratic Party is much, much stronger than the Republican Party uh, because of changes in the economy, uh, you know, and, and uh, the fact that a lot of business interests, uh, you know, are really not state or local business interests anymore. So, you know, the Democrats, that doesn't mean Democrats are going to make good policy, but it certainly means that they're in a position to make policy. And now that you have 
some changes in the city council, and then, you know, the advocate, Mac, Mike Madigan being gone, then, you know, you've got some potential uh, to, uh, you know, change the nature of politics to get something away from, you know, we don't want to go back to old patronage politics. Mm-hmm. We want to talk about, you know, a new politics that that is really representative and responsive. So, you know, the potential is certainly there, and you've seen a huge shift in policy from, you know, from in the last two election cycles. Uh, you know, we're much more progressive state than we were in terms of our policy. Talk about the importance when it comes to elections of, say, the city of Chicago versus uh, suburbs versus downstate. Well, it is, you know, you really are deciding elections in the suburbs. And, and you know, we're talking about suburban Cook and and uh, and the collar counties. You know, the downstate vote and the Chicago vote cancels it out pretty much. And so, uh, you know, it's it's where you win elections uh, are in the suburbs. And, you know, that's where you've seen the significant change. The, you know, suburban Cook is uh, a lot more Democratic. Uh, you know, it used to be Republican back when Jim Edgar got elected. Mm-hmm. And the collar counties uh, are, you know, they were Republican up until uh, really you got to, you were starting to get a change in the early, elect, you know, 2002 uh, or 2000, 2014. But in 2018, 2022, you know, huge shift to the Democrats. And so, you know, but you, that means you have to win elections in the suburbs. Downstate's still important, but, uh, you know, it, it really is the suburbs. And that's where the Republicans have been failing is they just they haven't been able to speak to the concerns of suburban voters. And in fact, they've been going in the opposite direction. The candidate for governor, uh, Darren Bailey, uh, was kind of the antithesis of the candidate you want to try and win a statewide election in Illinois because of how he played in the suburbs. Yeah, Um, I was talking um a couple of years ago with somebody who was in the state legislature and uh, some, they were a Democrat, but they, you know, found that there were certain Republicans who were more middle of the road, who they could accomplish things with, do things with. And they told me with this last election cycle, they almost all the moderates got primaried and um, almost all of them lost to their much more farther right, much more MAGA challengers. So is it possible for the Republican Party in Illinois to even get a moderate through a primary these days? Well, I, I, I think that's, you know, that's very difficult. I mean, you know, what we, we just played out was, you know, here you had Richard Irvin running mm-hmm. and backed by $50 million of Ken Griffin's money. And, you know, Governor Pritzker certainly played in terms of highlighting, uh, you know, Bailey's conservatism, but Bailey had a huge amount of money from Richard Eulin and some other interests. You know, it, it, it all you got was a Republican electorate kind of, you know, 
choosing the candidate that they liked uh, when when they understood what they stood for. And so Bailey gets 57, 58 percent of the the vote. And and that's, you know, that's the Republican, uh, you know, primary. And and 50 percent, I'm sorry, 60 percent of the Republican primary comes from downstate Illinois. So uh, it is very difficult to, to, you know, I mean, you could do it, and Rauner did it, obviously. You know, with billionaire money and the right situation, he was able to to, to get elected statewide. But uh, the Republican primary electorate has really become much more conservative. And so that's an issue. And, you know, Democrats are losing eventual seats downstate because, that downstate's getting more conservative, but you know the Democrats are more than happy to trade you know two seats in the suburb for one seat downstate. So, you know, right now Democrats, if they're united, if they're not fighting about you know who's you know who's getting the credit or you know trying to to push one group interest over another, they're in a strong position. You saw that with the policies that. You know that there there were things that got passed and since 2018 that I, I never would have expected to get passed in Illinois, particularly with the speak with Speaker Madigan there. Okay, uh, Professor Redfield, you have to take me back to political science 101 because you said something <laughs> um, that made me feel a little confused because. Um, my understanding is that, you know, uh, you know, getting things passed, politics uh, or at least elected office, it's a numbers game. And just a few minutes ago, you said that Democrats would easily or happily uh, give up two seats in the suburbs for one seat downstate. I don't understand that. Oh, OK, well, I, I mean, it's just it's a bad. That was a bad choice of words. <laughs> you know, the dynamics of. Uh, you know, you've got Southern Illinois Democrats, you know, historically labor, conservative, you know, and so you had areas that had a history of electing Democrats. And as those areas have turned more and more conservative, then, uh, you know, Democrats that have gotten elected retire, uh, the Democrats, of, of, you know, of nominate a conservative, very conservative uh, Democratic candidate to run in that downstate district. And it just gets to be no choice at all for the voters because uh, the Democrats sound exactly like the Republicans, and they've become more and more Republican identifying with the Republican Party. So the Democrats use gerrymandering to try and preserve seats downstate, you know, Senate seats, mm-hmm. House seats, but uh, you know, they it, it, it's to a certain extent, it's just you know, it's a losing game. The good news for the Democrats is the opposite dynamic exists in the suburbs, so that you've got suburban populations that have grown, become more diverse, become more moderate to progressive, and so. Uh, Conservative Republicans can't win. The Republican Party looks for moderate candidates. If they can get them through the primary, then they kind of sound like a Me Too candidate uh, compared to the Democrat, who is more attractive to the Democratic electorate. And so it's just a matter of 
you know, the Democrats, because they control the map, they can mitigate uh, the losses downstate to a certain extent, but then they can take advantage of the, the population dynamics, the changes in voting patterns in terms of drawing maps. I mean, I'm not crazy about gerrymandering. I think we should have districts that are communities of interest that people, oh, Professor Redfield, you know, hold that thought because we have to take a break. And I had already written down a note here that I wanted to talk to you about gerrymandering when we came back. I'm talking to Professor Emeritus Kent Redfield, who was with the political science department at the University of Illinois Springfield. We'll be right back after this. Joan Esposito, live, local and progressive on WCPT 820. And I am pleased to be joined by Professor Emeritus Kent Redfield, who's from the Political Science Department at the University of Illinois, Springfield. We have been talking state politics, and we were talking about politics here in the state of Illinois. And he he said a word which is triggering to me, and that's gerrymandering. Gerrymandering, you know, the party in power adjusts all of the districts so that uh, they can maximize the number of their voters in every district and minimize the number of voters from the other party in their district. It's, it's, it's kind of human nature to want to stack the deck if you have a chance to make things easier for your party. Um, but it's not, it's not fair. And uh, it prevents a lot of people from staying in office and getting into office, who would be good legislators, but because of gerrymandering, they don't run because they know they don't have a chance of winning. So what do you think about this, Professor Redfield? I mean, it does seem like the temptation would be almost too great to resist if your party was in power and had a chance to redraw maps. And yet, is it is it really what we should be doing? Uh- no, absolutely not. I mean, partisan maps where, you know, the, the primary factor is, you know, drawing a map that maximizes, the, you know, the number of seats that your party can wins, you know, that distorts the process. It, you know, you divide communities of interest, you know, and you, you, you make divisions, uh, you marry areas together, on the basis of, you know, their voting behavior rather than whether there are common interests, common concerns. And, you know, that destroys representation because representation is about, you know, people electing someone to office that they feel understands them and does understand their district and their concerns and that they can communicate with and most importantly, trust, you know. Well, you know, I'm not sure about this issue, but, you know, we've sent a, this woman to Congress or to the legislature, and, you know, she's grown up here. She's one of us. And, you know, I'm going to listen to what they have to say. You know, that's the sort of thing that where you get positive. You, the potential is there for really meaningful representation and interactive two-way communication with between the legislature legislator and the district. Partisan maps are brutal. You know, in Illinois, uh, we have, uh, we're like maybe a 56-44 state and a Democrat to Republican. 
the Democrats control 82 percent of the congressional districts. Uh, there are no Demo- there are no members of Congress uh, in either Chicago, Cook County, or the you know the northeastern Illinois suburbs. Uh, we've got congressional districts in that are based in Chicago that reach all the way down to Danville, Illinois, which is about you know as <laughs> central Illinois. So you know partisan partisan maps are really great at at building majority, but they're really lousy at presenting at, at getting representation or competition. Um, you know, because that's what you, when you draw a map, you want to make as many safe districts as possible, mm-hmm. but you want to make sure your party has more than the other party. Uh, the process we have in Illinois, if you control the legislature and the governor's office, you can write the maps. The Supreme Court has checked out on this. They've said, you know, we don't know how to deal with partisanship, so the states are going to have to figure it out. What and, about if there was know, federal you, legislation? Could could this be addressed? Uh, no, uh, could they, there be? Oh, no? I'm, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, no, no that's I asked my question. You know, this is a this is you know this is this is a federalism issue, and so states control the drawing of the maps. And, you know, you, there are things that principles like one man, one vote, or one person, one vote, excuse me, that, uh, you know, that you have to comply with. Uh, you can't discriminate, discriminate on the basis of race, you know, plus or minus. You know, those are things that are basic in the, in the, in, in, in the Bill of Rights. But when it gets down to can you draw a map that's constitutional, that it's biased partisan from a partisan standpoint, the courts have said, you know, we're not, you know, we can't resolve those issues and it's going to be up to the states. So, you know, Illinois has to ultimately would have to amend its constitution and take the power away from the legislature and turn it over to some kind of, you know, appointed commission uh, that could make decisions this is very difficult. It's chaotic in terms of the way that different states have done it. The only meaningful thing I think I think you can do is you write in the Constitution, these are the values, communities of interest, political subdivisions. You know, we, we want to maximize those sorts of things so that you can sue, you know, and have a, the court can come in and say, well, within the criteria – the state is set, uh, you know, this is a good map, this is a bad map. But uh, it is not a good process, and uh, it, it ends up, uh, you know, creating districts that uh, the common denominator is R's and D's, mm-hmm. whether or not, you know, all those R's uh, think the same way that, uh, uh, you know, think together and all the D's think together. If half your district is Springfield, and half your district is is Decatur, which is kind of our Senate district down here in my area. Then, uh, you know, you're really not representing anybody. Uh, we used to have a used to have three congressmen representing Illinois, and the mayor said, "Oh, lucky us." And someone else <laughs> said, "If you've got three congressmen, you've got no congressmen because their interests are somewhere else." 
So I, I'm, I'm running off. I'm, running, <laughs> I'm no. rambling here, but but it is you know it is a big problem, and nobody you know Illinois does not want to unilaterally uh, you know uh, say okay we're gonna. You know, we're going to not make our congressional districts partisan anymore. Uh, you know, if 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 they declare uh, that they're going to, you know, if they do that, then that just, you know, that doesn't that works to the party's disadvantage nationally. Until, you know, you don't do unilateral disarmament. You know, until you've got to get a national solution. But, you know, a, a different Supreme Court would help if we were just working. Yeah. But, um, yeah, it's a problem and. Uh, it makes representation harder. There's absolutely no question about it because your 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 priorities are on on you know partisanship rather than what are the problems and how do we solve them. Well, you know, you just you just unpacked a, a whole legislative session there. Uh, <laughs> we're going to have to uh, get you back because things are very interesting in Illinois politics and. Um, I think that there's going to be a lot more. I think that uh, the arrival of the Democratic National Convention this summer is going to really stir things up in Illinois, and I need an Illinois expert to walk me through it. So I hope you will return to us again in the future, Professor Redfield. Oh, I would be happy to talk. Thank you. Uh, Kent Redfield is the Professor Emeritus of Political Science at the University of Illinois Springfield. We are going to take a break for news and be back with more after this. I would like to uh, welcome back Dr. Anna Pellick and our sponsored Health and Wellness Center. She is, of course, with Total Dentistry. You hear her ads here on WCPT. And uh, we have always very interesting conversations with her. Dr. Pellick, thank you for returning. Thank you for having me again, Joan. I appreciate it. And I have to say, um, you know, when we were emailing about, you know, exactly what we were going to cover, I love, I love your suggestion about the dental needs of people 50 and older, because you are talking to me, Dr. Pellick. (laughs) So uh, what would you say? Yeah. Yeah. So let's let's talk about that. And how would the dental needs of somebody in my demographic uh, be different than, say, somebody in their 20s or 30s? Well, first, Joan, I, I want to push the fact that being an election year, now is the time for people to really voice their concerns over health care, whether that's medical or dental. Um, I think that we, there are a lot of improvements that can be made in health care and the insurance industry. Amen to that. So, uh, just to give you a rough idea, in 2020, and I don't have the current census, but in 2020, there were 55.8 million people over 65. That's 17% of the population in 2020. They assumed that by 2030, all the baby boomers, um, obviously, there'll be an increased number and the largest percentage of people over 65 in 2030. So I don't feel we're we're ready for that. Wow. whether it be mental health care. Um, and, and, and just to kind of go over some data, um, you know, it's, 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 there's data that people 65 or over, one out of five have untreated decay in their mouth. Why is that? 
two out of three, 68% have gum disease, not treated. Why is that? So a, a lot of times, you know, people that as we age are susceptible more because our mouths are drier, people tend to be on more medications, we are susceptible to root decay, to gum disease, uh, to, to increase sensitivity to different products, whether that's Novocaine or the drugs we use, to sedation. So obviously it's always better to be proactive and get treatment earlier, right, when you can. Mm-hmm. Um, but with increasing health issues, diabetes, heart problems, pressure medications, cancer, hip and knee replacements, all these factors come into play as we age. And all those factors affect the health of your mouth, your, your, your ability to get a cavity, your ability to have gum disease. So it's very important for us to prepare as we age for those years because, unfortunately, insurance coverage and retirement funds don't necessarily cover that, right? Yeah. So, so I, I'm always suggesting to my patients, and I, I feel it's very, very important to let the public know that the time to make sure you're healthy is before you retire, you know, to make sure that your major treatment is done and that your long-term care, that your health providers look at your long-term care. Are you going to be okay when you're retired? Are your benefits, Medicare, your supplemental insurances, going to cover your needs at that point in time? I see so many people go with not getting their medications because they can't afford it. You know, postponing treatment, whether it be a cavity or gum problems or an extraction, because they just can't afford it. Wow. So as a as an overall, you know, as a healthcare provider, as a concerned citizen, we really need to look at what we're doing for the public moving forward and how can we improve our healthcare system. Let's well let's and talk about here. the the paying part of that for just a minute. Um, does Medicare uh, have dental coverage? Well, to my knowledge, they're getting a little bit better, but the care is very bleak. Um, Most of the time it's very basic, you know, like an extraction, a cleaning. Most patients that I'm aware of have supplemental dental care. In other words, they buy another policy so Mm -hmm. that it covers some of the, the treatment that they may need. And again, that's very basic as well. And how much do they spend on that? That varies across the board with the insurance companies. Yeah. So my, my personal opinion is if you can go to your dentist and ask if they have any in-house plans, that typically, from what I've found, is the best way to go. Well, we have something called TCP plan, which basically is a flat yearly rate that people pay. Um, it includes your two free cleanings, your exam, your x-rays. Ours runs 425 a year for one person, which sometimes is cheaper than the policies you're paying. And there's no cap, number one. And number two, it's discounted across the board for all procedures. So when you look at it financially, sometimes it's better for you to look at alternative plans and not take the plan that you're having. <laughs> you you, so <laughs> I've never heard of this. This is something that dentists, well, like you, Dr. Pellick, 
is is this something you offer through an agency? Is this something that your practice has considered? Is this something that when I go to see my dentist next, that that what do I say? Do you have an in-house plan? Is that what I ask? In-house plan, right? An in-house uh, financing plan or insurance plan? Yep. Huh. I've never heard of this before. I didn't know anything like this was even out there. Oh, several of us have it, actually. I know several doctors that have it at this point in time. And and it's a plan that you create in-house in your practice. Uh, You can do it through an agency. Um, There's different ways to do it. But basically, it's it's an annual fee. It offers you X amount of benefits. Uh, You pay your annual fee, and it's, it's all laid out. You know, it's all itemized out for you. So you can see what the fees are and what you would pay, you know, your your portion. It's like a discounted plan. Uh, some of the major companies have it. Aetna has one. Um, I'm trying to think of other ones. But you have to see how much the actual um, program, the policy, costs per year. Mm-hmm. And, then compare, and then compare what you're getting for that price. Yeah. I want to ask you, one of the things that you said you've seen in your practice are, especially older folks who have a cavity they don't know about or gum disease that they don't know about or aren't getting treated for. Um, I thought that as you got older, your risk for cavities was much less. Actually, that's not true. I thought past a certain age, you didn't get cavities anymore. Is that not right? That is not true. I know. I used to you stare when I was younger, too, and that is absolutely not true. And as we age, we have less saliva flow in our mouths. Medication, systemic issues actually will affect our mouth as well. Um, you know, when you, when you have uh, heart problems, you have diabetes, you have, um, let's say, a hip replacement, a, a lot of different situations will actually decrease your immune system. And when your immune system decreases, your chances of getting decay actually increase. Really? And if you look at that have had hip replacements, knee replacements, things of that nature, a lot of times they have to have clearance from the dentist to make sure they don't have any current infection going on in their mouth. Because the body, everything is interrelated. If you have bacteria in your mouth, it can go to your heart. That's why a lot of people are premedicated when they have heart problems or prosthetic replacements. They have to premedicate with an antibiotic because we don't want the bacteria from the mouth traveling back to the heart. Wow. Uh, The body is so intertwined um, that uh, really, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting because people see teeth as very separate from the body. It's like this own entity, but it's not. You know, they've linked periodontal disease to heart problems. Um, diabetics are very well aware of that they have a higher tendency towards gum disease and tooth decay because of their situation. Um, people that have TMJ issues typically have other issues with their back, their neck, and spine because all of that is intertwined, you know. Um, so, so you have to look at the whole picture and your teeth and the, the health of your, not just your teeth, but your gums affect the rest of your system as well. What's the most important thing you can do to keep your gums healthy? Brush and floss. And if you're not a a flosser, get a water flosser. Um, As we age, people typically uh, get gum recession. Uh, With that gum recession, there become bigger spaces in between the teeth where you get food stuck. 
it's important to keep those areas clean. The drier your mouth, again, as we age, we have less saliva flow. It's important to increase your water intake, maybe get, you know, saliva supplements, use products that help with dry mouth so you get less decay. You but know, people will get decay. It's so matter. funny that you yeah. talk about that because a few years ago, I went to my dentist and I said, something is wrong with my teeth. I said, I think I've lost all the Teflon that was on my teeth because when now when I eat anything, it's all over my teeth. It's like, you know, whatever I just my last meal, I, I don't just swallow it. I wear it. And I said, yeah. I said, what what happened to the Teflon that covered my teeth? And he said, no, it's not anything to do with your teeth. It's that you don't have as much saliva anymore. So what we just dry out as we get old. Our salivary glands decrease production. Yeah, we lose fluid, just like in your knees. You know, you lose fluid in the knees. You start getting the creaky knees. <laughs> you lose fluid everywhere. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Oh, and you lose saliva. So it's, it's very important for water intake. Um, and that's why you hear all the time, you know, drink your water, make sure you keep healthy, take your vitamins. And with increased medications, that tends to dry the amount of saliva production as well. So very important when you're taking different medications to make sure you have moisture in the mouth. Wow. I, you, know, I, you know, just talking about this, I feel my mouth drying out right now. There must be a psychological component to it, too. Yeah, and, that, and that's the other thing, too. A lot of people assume that as you age, it's not important to take care of your teeth. There's other issues. And, and I understand, you know, that, that there comes a, a point in time where, okay, your heart is more important, your eyes are more important, but your teeth are important as well. Mm-hmm. Because there are people that, unfortunately, as they age, you know, for whatever reasons, through their, their livelihood, have neglected their teeth. And there comes a point in time where, dentures are no longer the answer. You know, they can't even hold the denture in. Um, There's, again, you want to take care of your situation in your 50s, you know, so you you have yourself set for the next 30 years. You want to look at the long-term processes. Um, And if you need treatment, that's the time you really want to make sure that you've got everything buttoned up because of finances, because of things that can happen as you retire. Um, but people, you know, that life gets in the way and people cannot always afford to do treatment right away. But the more you look at getting those things done, the healthier you will be because you'll be able to eat. Yeah. There are a lot of people out there who tolerate dentures and they tolerate partials, but they can't eat well. Mm. And, and that's a big difference in health. Because if you want to stay healthy and people do live longer now, the way to stay healthy is keeping your teeth. Because then you can eat normal, and then you can have a normal diet, which will give you the nutrition to stay healthy. I'm talking to Dr. Anna Pellick, and uh, Dr. Pellick, we have a caller. Kenny is calling in from the South Loop and wants to talk to you. Hey, Kenny, you're on with me and Dr. Anna Pellick. Go ahead. Joan, good afternoon and happy belated new year. Thank you. You are my all-time favorite journalist, and Dr. Pellick... (laughs) is my lifesaver dentist. I have been through so many dentists, Joan, and Anna Pellick literally saved my mouth. Wow. In fact, 
I drive 35 miles, don't I, Dr. Felix? <laughs> Out to her practice because she is the best in the universe. And I just cannot give her enough praise for her excellent dental care. She is just absolutely the best. And I'm listening to her on your program, and I'm writing down everything she says because she is my dental guru. She is the very best. She is the very best. So I cannot praise her highly enough, and I can't praise you enough, Joan, for having her on because she is just a fountain of dental knowledge and expertise. Well, Kenny, um, that's... We both appreciate those wonderful testimonials. Yeah, and um, Yeah, we want to know if you can call in every day and tell us these things because uh, Anna and I both need to hear this. Well, Joan, I've been a fan of yours forever and a day. And, and Dr. Pellick, I just I recommend her to everybody because literally she could write a book on what she had to do to save my uh, oral care. And she is just fantastic. And I just anybody within the range of listening, I want them to know to go to Dr. Pellick because she's the very best. So Aww. I want to <laughs> thank you. No, well. thank you both. Thank you, Kenny. Thank you for those kind words. And, you know, Dr. Pellick, in the interest of full disclosure, I mentioned this last time you were on, um, my partner, Ray McKenzie, uh, goes to you. Uh, he um, he likes the, the fact that you're gentle with him and you don't hurt him. He's a very sensitive man. Uh, well, I'll tell you, we do use definitely use techniques that um, help. And I think I spoke about this last time. You know, I make my own topical. I have it made at the pharmacy that helps numb the area before I even give you the injection. I use different size needles so that you don't feel it going in because that is one of the biggest fears that people have. Mm -hmm. So we take our time. You know, and we make sure that you're comfortable with the procedure so that you don't have any pain. And and once you build that trust and you know that it's not going to hurt, yeah, it, it's easy for people, you know. So I myself, I hate pain. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned um, as far as, yeah, when you were talking about care, you mentioned uh, water flossers. I actually happen to have one of those, and I I like it very much. Uh but I use but I, sometimes I actually floss with string and then I brush my teeth and then I use the water flosser um, because I, I don't know if it's as if, it, if I can rely on it as best I can with the regular floss. Is it is it just as good if I use it right? Uh, I recommend people using both. I think it's it's more thorough if you actually use both the water flosser and floss. But some people have a hard time flossing. They can't get their hands in the back of their mouth. Um, so they'll resort to other, other methods, right? Something mm -hmm. is better than nothing. So if you can't get in the back areas, a water flosser is ideal. If you can't get under your bridge work or under your implants, a water flosser is ideal. Again, any mechanism that you can use to get in and flush the plaque out, flush the food out, is to your benefit. Mm -hmm. We talked at the beginning of this about how, um, you know, the older portions of our population are um, are quite large. Do you see that in your practice? How does how does the age break down in your practice? 
Um, I would say, you know, we have more adults and elderly than we do youth. Um, I really, it seems that um, the population, I would say we probably have two-thirds, uh, anywhere from 18 and above. Uh, a lot of my population is about, I'd say, 15 to 20 percent, 65 and above. Um, so I do see a lot of retirees at this point um, and, and struggling, obviously, on how to manage, you know, retirement with taking care of their bodies and taking care of their oral health. Mm-hmm. And that's why I bring it up that I think it's very important to start voicing our opinions on healthcare. Um, I think I also mentioned this last time, but most insurance companies reimburse a thousand to fifteen hundred per year. That was the same amount back in the sixties. Oh. Now what has stayed the same the same price from nineteen sixty to twenty twenty three? Nothing. <laughs> yeah. so, uh, you know, and even from twenty twenty to now, currently with inflation. The rates have gone and not gone up. Some of the insurance companies have decreased their coverage on certain items. Instead of 100% of a cleaning, it's 80%. Or instead of 100% of an x-ray, it's 90% coverage. So my point being is, how do we get our healthcare system to either cover the cost better, or how do we get it a little bit less costly to us as the um, insured so that not, we're not paying that premium every month. What options are there? And yeah. I found the best option to be the in-house insurance companies that are typically some providers have. Not everybody, but, but a lot of the um, businesses are, are leaning towards that now um, because of the cost of the insurance for a lot of people. So I would recommend that the listeners look at their health care plans, look at what they're paying on their premiums for dental, and, and do the apples-to-apples comparison Yeah, and see what works for them, you know. Uh, but if you're paying 200 bucks a month on a premium that's only giving you $1,000, what's the point if you yeah. need more treatment, right? So, so I really, you know, I think sometimes the insurance companies, you, know, you hear, oh, it's only, you know, it's only this amount, you know, maybe a hundred bucks, two hundred bucks a month. That's great, you have insurance, but what are you actually getting for that? Mm-hmm. Do you, you know, have if you're, to... if you're paying twenty dollars a year versus something that's four hundred twenty-five dollars a year, and you're getting the same benefit? Doesn't yeah. make sense. Yeah, you really have to sit down and do those calculations. What am I spending? Um, what am, what kind of coverage do I need? What kind of bills can I expect? And what makes financial sense? Um, if you're younger, do you need to go to the dentist less? Or perhaps I should say, if you're older, do you need to go for cleanings and checkups more often? What's the, what's the standard? Uh, typically, I would say from... Uh, youth, um, we see from three years old and up, um, most people will come in twice a year, and that's pretty average. If you have, if you have a tendency towards gum disease, then it's typically three to four times a year. Uh, as we age, I recommend more often, and that's difficult for a lot of people. But the more often you come in because your mouth is drier and you're accumulating more bacteria, it's important to get the cleaning so that we can remove things off the roots of your teeth. A mm-hmm. lot of those areas are missed by our common products, our toothbrushes, even flossing. If you don't use the right technique flossing, 
you're going to miss some areas that are along the roots. The roots become rough with erosion and the different foods that we eat, you know, uh, different acids in the foods we eat that will help with erosion of the roots. And those little crevices will accumulate plaque and can easily break down into cavities. Is there any way to know if you have gum disease? Is there something to look for? Uh, Typically, it's bleeding gums. You won't really feel pain, but you might see your gums bleed when you floss or your brush. Now, gum disease is kind of like, we call it the quiet disease. It doesn't really show you symptoms until it's late in the chain of the disease. And the reason being is that, you know, you're not going to see a change until that bacteria accumulates so much that it creates your gums to turn beet red or bleed. You Mm. might get sunscreen. Like, oh, I feel like my gums are a little sore. But when you brush, you should not have bleeding. When you floss, you should not have bleeding. If you have a bad taste in your mouth, you might want to have go to the dentist and see what that bad taste is. Because a lot of times the bacteria will actually create the odor that leads to gum disease. Hmm. So people with gum disease typically have bad breath. It's very common. Wow. Um, another thing is, is you know... If you feel like your teeth are slightly mobile, you need to go see the dentist because teeth should not be mobile. They shouldn't be wiggly. Right, exactly. So a lot of times that's what actually brings in a person. They'll actually have an abscess from the gum or they'll have loose teeth and they're like, oh, something's wrong with my tooth. You You could be a person that has never had a cavity in their life, but yet your gums are different. You could have gum disease without any decay. Wow. And I've seen that. So you don't have a cavity to have gum disease. There's separate entities, separate, you know, um, topics, separate diseases that affect the mouth. Dr. Pellick, thank you so much for supporting WCPT. Thank you for being such a great dentist. And thank you for explaining things so well and so clearly. Uh, it is always a pleasure to do these uh, sponsored health and wellness segments with you. I, I really appreciate your participation here. Thank you. And, Joan, if any of the audience has a question, feel free to give us a call. We're always here to speak to any of the listeners. Uh, We truly want people to have knowledge in their oral health care because we are concerned. And as I said, you know, we have an elderly population that's going to hit peak at 2030. Mm. We need to look at that as a culture and say, okay, what are we going to do? Yeah. Dr. Pellick has offices in Palatine and Streamwood. You can go to totaldentistry.org to find out more. Thank you again, Dr. Pellick. Um, I appreciate talking to you. And uh, that's going to uh, lead us into a commercial break. We will be back with more after this. Now back to Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I am very pleased to welcome back Chris Bury, the DePaul University journalist in residence. Yes, you recognize that name because for many years he was a network news guy. And I spoke to him before the Iowa caucuses, and he said that he was going to be attending the caucuses with a group of students from DePaul. And uh, part of the reason why I wanted Chris to join us today was to talk about that experience with his students. Chris, welcome back. How are you? I'm great, uh, Joan. Thank you for having me on again. So were your students traumatized and are they now in therapy after being um, in Iowa? 
they were very cold. <laughs> I mean, it, it was just, it was just brutal. Um, we woke up, I think it was Sunday morning before the caucuses and the temperature, not the wind chill, but the actual temperature was 17 below zero. So it was, I mean, the weather is just, was just horrible. Not only was it cold, but there had been a blizzard on Friday. And so it was blowing and drifting snow. We counted more than 100 cars and tractor trailers in ditches. In fact, at one point within, I think it was an hour, we counted more than 30 trucks that had been, um, you know, jackknifed in ditches. So, uh, man, <laughs> driving eight students around, you know, for four days in those conditions. I mean, my hands were, you know, 10 and 2 on the wheel. My fingers were white. <laughs> and uh, it was uh, it was stressful. But they had a, a really, uh, I think, an excellent time. They uh, all said they had learned a lot. Uh, they got to see some of the candidates up close and personal. So I think, you know, for some aspiring young journalists, it was really a terrific experience. Well, they got to see the candidates up close and personal. Did they also observe some of the national journalists who were there? They, they did. And I asked, you know, what what the takeaway was, what they got out of that. And one of the interesting things was, oh, I had no idea that you people had to move so quickly <laughs> um, because, you know, you're, when you're chasing candidates in a, a state like Iowa, I mean, you drive, you know, two hours to see one and then you crisscross the state four hours, another one. You have, you know, barely time to, uh, you know, to get a granola bar. So I think they were a little bit um, stunned at how quickly. Uh, journalists have to work and how hard they have to work. I mean, we didn't get back to the motel till midnight on any one of those nights because, you know, we're chasing people all over Iowa in, in bad weather. And I said, hey, this is a great learning experience for you because, you know, despite what you may think watching, you know, people on television, it's not a glamorous mm-hmm. occupation. You know, you are out and you're talking to people uh, in all kinds of conditions and you have to work very fast. So uh, I, th- I think it was a bit of a wake-up call for uh, for some of them, but I also think that they really enjoyed it. And speaking of, of seeing candidates, one of the students said, you know, I thought it was going to be like going to, you know, a, a concert, a hip-hop concert or something where you were gonna be, we were going to be way back at the end and there'd be a little figure on the stage. And, you know, instead in Iowa, you know, these candidates are in barbecue joints and um, small cafes. And so, you know, they were within, you know, a few feet of the candidates. And so I think that was surprising to them. And it's one of the things that is interesting about Iowa and New Hampshire. There are a lot of, you know, things that are not obviously uh, reflective of the American population. But the one thing that both of the, the small states do offer, not just for journalists, but for ordinary people, is a real chance to get up close and personal and ask candidates questions and, and see how they, you know, respond on stage. So, um, you know, there, there, so did there your students dr- get to do one on one interviews at any point? No, they, was, no, j- no? no, no, they didn't do one on one interviews, but um, they did get. Um, you know, right up, uh, you know, next to, you know, uh, press gaggles and so on. And, you know, obviously they got to hear the, um, the, the voters ask the candidates questions. So all of that was, uh, was good, even though, you know, for like for you and me and those of us who have been around politics for a while, you know, once you've been to a few events, the stump speech just starts to repeat and you hear it again and again. Mm-hmm, absolutely. I know that, um, when I was in when I was in local news, um, sometimes a local news reporter would be sent 
um, either out of state or out of the country to cover a story. And I used to tell people, you know, you don't understand what that's like because, you know, especially if there's a big time change, you know, you run around all day trying to get the right footage and talk to the right people and then you put it together and then you stay up half the night so that you can introduce your story live and and button it up live. And, you know, sleep is, I remember... You know, when the, when the Statue of Liberty had its, like, uh, 200th anniversary, I was only in New York, but we were running around all day. You know, I would do a live shot for the 10 o'clock news, and there was one time where um, the next day we were going to be doing a story um, from the USS Kennedy, after I finished up the live shot, though, we had to go directly to the dock because the reporters had to be at the dock at 2 a.m. to get <laughs> um, to get ferried at 3 a.m. over to the aircraft carrier. So, you know, they would they would be there when it was light at like 8 a.m. in the morning so they could get all their footage and get back. I went like 36 hours with no sleep. I know when we were on this boat that was ferrying us from the dock to the USS Kennedy. I mean, I was, we were all just, there were no seats. We were like, I don't know what kind of military boat it was, but we were all just sitting on the floor and I just put my head on my chest and I went right to sleep. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, like by the time we got to the USS Kennedy, you know, my photographer elbowed me. We got up, I wiped the sleep out of my eyes and there we go again. You know, whenever I'm watching the news and I see, you know, on CNN, the reporters in, Ukraine, you know, where, uh, you know, what, it's eight or nine hours ahead and it's in the middle of the night, four in the morning, and they're up trying to be lucid for, you know, for live shots. Uh, and of course, you know, most viewers don't think about that, but some of those time zones can be really difficult. I remember being in Afghanistan for ABC News uh, and going on at Nightline, and I think we were 12 hours ahead. That really screws up your, uh, your mm. sleep schedule. But And of course, the producers in New York don't care. No. Because every, everything runs on New York time, so you can be in Afghanistan or Antarctica, and it doesn't matter. You're going to, you know, you are going to do what New York wants uh, when they want it. That's just the way it works. Yeah, it, it always. It when I used to, you know, talk to different uh, community groups, it always used to shock them to find out that even, you know, if you r run a story on the local news and it the story runs like a minute and a half, maybe 90 seconds, um, maybe a few seconds more if you're really good at, uh, you know, negotiating. But it takes six to eight hours by the time you get out. You know, you go to one location, you go to another location, you set up, you do the interviews, you shoot the pictures, you come back, you do the writing, you do the editing. It's it's an incredible amount of time for often what seemed to me a very small amount of results. Yeah, no, it, it really is. I mean, the whole production that goes into uh, television news and, and even, you know, good radio news like NPR, it's, it really is. I mean, the, the best people spend a lot of time doing it. And, of course, you know, the viewers and listeners don't know and they probably don't care, but that, you know, they should know. And sometimes when you hear the anti-media rhetoric from some of these candidates, it really is uh, annoying because, you know, you have reporters all over the world risking their lives to bring Americans news to inform them to 
to live in a democracy. And, you know, when you get called enemy of the people and, you know, biased and all these things, uh, it, it really is disappointing. I mean, uh, you and I have both known people who have uh, been injured and, and killed in the line of duty. And we, we're seeing it again right now in, in Gaza. We're seeing it in Ukraine uh, where it can be a, a dangerous job. And so, you know, when when someone uh, like the former president starts calling us the the enemy of the people, I would say hackles uh, are raised among those of us who have, have done this for a living for a long time. What what did your students say to you? What um, you know, not what were aside from the fact that they thought it was going to be like a rap concert and it was not. <laughs> what else? What what else did they say? You know, I, I think that they were, um, uh, you know, struck just by the, the, the sort of chaotic nature. For example, we had driven two hours one morning to see Nikki Haley. We had driven from the uh, – we were staying in a little town called Mount Vernon. And we stayed there because it was cheap with all the national – uh, media camped out in Des Moines, hotel rates get uh, crazy. So uh, whenever I take a group there, I always pick a, you know, a town sort of out in the middle of nowhere so that we can afford to go. But anyway, so we had driven two hours one morning to see Nikki Haley in Davenport on the eastern side on the Mississippi River. And we got there and her supporters were all there and people were strolling in and she canceled, you know, at the last minute, oh. uh, probably because there wasn't going to be enough national media there. And instead, she rescheduled an event near Des Moines uh, in West Des Moines, where all of the national media were were staying. And she wanted that. So she basically blew off her supporters in Davenport, Iowa. And so then we traipsed back to Des Moines, which was another four hours for us um, just to get her. And we got we were late for the event. And they couldn't you know, get us all in. So we, then we we went to another Nikki Haley event later that night. Uh, and the, the the print reporters got in, but they wouldn't let our television camera in for just no good reason at all. I mean, there's plenty of room. They were just being jerks about it. Um, so I, I think that kind of thing. Um, the DeSantis people, I must say, um, among the Republican candidates in Iowa, uh, didn't give us you know any problem at all. We got into DeSantis events um, with zero uh, pushback or any problem at all. Uh, the Haley people were a little difficult, and Trump. <laughs> yeah, um, we were you know we were very conscientious, and we had all. I had my students file for press credentials. I filed for press credentials on behalf of them. I think I did it almost three weeks in advance of the event that we wanted to attend. And, uh, you know, two days before Trump, uh, the Trump campaign um, just rejected all of us, or rejected all of our requests, which is, I just thought, so petty. Uh, but we weren't the only ones. I mean, there was a, a newspaper in, uh, I think, the only newspaper in northern Iowa. And um, the Trump campaign rejected their request to attend an event in their backyard. So, you well, know, what, I think. Was there any explanation for the rejection or why or did oh, no. you get any feel no, for why no. it happened? None at all. I mean, we had just put in the, the request and then we got uh, an email back and the email just said that all of our requests had been uh, rejected. No reason uh, whatsoever. It, it seemed to be completely arbitrary. I'm sure if we were Fox News or, you know, even CNN, you know, we would have been granted uh, credentials because of the maximum viewership. And they did ask um, on the credential form whether we were TV or print. And I, I put down both because that was the truth. Um, but no, there was no. So that was slightly disappointing. We our students did get to talk to quite a few Trump voters 
because beyond covering the candidates, we also attended a caucus uh, Monday night in a precinct of Mount Vernon, which is sort of an exurb of Cedar Rapids. And that was really interesting because, you know, it, it's sort of fundamental democracy. Uh, people gave little speeches in favor of one candidate or another, and then they voted by paper ballots, and the ballots were just passed along these rows of, of chairs in an auditorium to a box, and then they were counted a couple of times afterwards. So it's really democracy with a small d. And, and that was fun for the students to observe. They had no idea what a caucus you know really looked like, and it gave them an opportunity to talk to all kinds of Republican voters, you know, Haley, DeSantis, um, Ramaswamy, um, as well as uh, Trump voters. And of course, you know, that night uh, Trump did uh, did very well as he as he did last night in, in in New Hampshire. And so, you know, they also got to see the, the kind of grip that he does right now enjoy on on most of the Republican Party. When they were talking to Trump voters, I assume they weren't just like chatting, that they were doing this like to prepare stories of their own is, is that yeah they were they were interviewing uh, voters from you know all um, all the Republican candidates basically to see why they supported their uh, you know candidates and it was it was interesting and you know it was along the lines of what one might uh, expect um, you know Nikki Haley voters often stood out for uh, mainly because they didn't like Trump uh, number one and number two it was sort of interesting that there was support for her policy on Ukraine um, and Trump voters uh, you know seemed to either like him or you know we're talking about immigration and you know one thing that I noticed sitting through multiple candidate events and, and watching lots of campaign commercials in Iowa for those four days, you know, really uh, interesting. The the number one applause line uh, by far was immigration, whether it was from DeSantis or Haley, finish the wall, close the border, catch and deport. Those sort of slogans brought crowds to their feet. And I found that really ironic in Iowa because Iowa is a state that depends so much on immigrant labor for the factories and the farms. And yet all of these commercials and all of, all of the candidate rhetoric was, you know, basically virulently anti-immigrant. So I thought how difficult it must be to be a hardworking, you know, immigrant in, in Iowa working in a factory or a farm. And then you're just surrounded by, you know, all of this uh, anti-immigrant stuff. And that, that must be really difficult. But that really struck me. Uh, the, the other thing is. The it was almost like an alternate reality when when you attend a lot of these events and watch these commercials, um, you know, not only the fear of immigrants, but sort of the fear of being, you know, forced to buy electric cars. That was another big, you know, Biden's going to force you all to buy electric cars um, or, or, you know, Biden's going to let, you know, the, all the boys on your uh, girls volleyball team. Um, so that kind of fear really was the through line for, I think, for all the Republican candidates in Iowa. And I, I found that uh, really interesting. Do you think that was effective because, um, let's face it, a lot of older white people are diehard Fox viewers and Fox uh, cable does mostly fear mongering. Do you think those two... The, the fact that people applauded immigration, even though they there's an Im immigration lawyer out of Texas I talk to all the time. 
And she's like, people don't get it. They don't get how immigrants fuel our economy and how they are needed and how they don't take away jobs. Mostly they do the jobs that nobody else wants to do. And I'm wondering, you know, was this a did you did, were you seeing what you thought was like a Fox News indoctrination? Were you seeing you know, racism at work, because as we know, Iowa is a very, 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 very white state. What did you think was was going on? Yeah, I think a lot a large part of it is a closed feedback loop. So obviously a lot of uh, Fox viewers and then, you know, these folks who are supporting the candidates are hearing this rhetoric all the time. And their friends are hearing it and the people in their bar, church or whatever. Um, the, the sort of identity politics that we talk about a lot, I think, is a huge, um, a huge factor. And the irony seems lost, right, that um, Iowa really depends on immigrants. And, and yet uh, these candidates don't want any more immigrants. And the other ironic thing is in Iowa, and this is back in uh, May of last year, the governor, Kim Reynolds, signed a bill allowing, you know, 14-year-olds to work Ugh. up to 11 o'clock at night on school nights. And I think, you know, four to six hours and more on weekends. So they are at the same time, this this anti-immigrant rhetoric is ratcheting up in Iowa. Um, <laughs> the governor, uh, you know, uh, gets a law passed, which basically allows kids uh, to work. Uh, you know, and, and work at a very young age and, and serve alcohol, by the way, at age 16. And so guess who a lot of those kids are going to be? A lot of those kids are going to be immigrants. So, yeah, it, it's uh, the irony was seemed to be, you know, completely lost. And uh, but I th- also think I also kind of saw, you know, a danger signal there for the Democrats. Um, I, I think that they cannot afford to brush off immigration as they often have in, in policy and process terms and, and say, you know, oh, well, we, we, you know, we proposed immigration reform and the Republicans won't go along. That's lost. <laughs> that kind of, you know, that's rational thinking. I get it. But it's lost in the emotions of a presidential campaign. So I think the Democrats are going to have to figure out a way to address, you know, all these polls. I mean, immigration is either the number one or the number two issue in all of these states. Uh, in Iowa, uh, it was at 80 percent of Iowa Republicans say immigration is the most important uh, question. So I think there's a lot of room for the Democrats to grapple with it in some different way than they're doing now. That's just my, you know, unscientific impression. I was talking to a political scientist a few weeks ago who had what I thought was a pretty radical solution. You know, um, Mike Johnson, uh, Speaker of the House, has um, said that, you know, he's not going to vote on an aid package for Israel or Taiwan or Ukraine unless we have significant border reform. And if you read what they want, a lot of it is really draconian. But this political scientist that I was talking to said, you know what? Biden administration wants to play this smart, give it to them. Whatever they want, give it to them. And then after the fact, when things aren't working or things aren't turning around, turning out the way everybody thought they would, then go back and fix it. But for now, you know, you want this aid package. Uh, you want to, you know, you want to take control of the immigration issue. 
give it to them. And if it and if it blows up in their face, it blows up in their face. I thought that was a very bold take on this issue. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think it's logical. I mean, I I think that the history of presidential politics is that uh, in order to win, candidates have to move to the center at the expense somewhat of their base. So, uh, you know, Biden uh, has already ticked off part of his base already uh, because of uh, the Israel-Hamas war. Um, And, you know, you see that in polls where uh, younger voters particular are saying that uh, it may change their decision. They may sit out the race, whatever. But I think Biden does have to move to the middle on immigration because as we're seeing, you know, not only in Chicago, but in virtually all of the suburbs, you know, whether it's Joliet or Wilmette or Naperville, we're seeing, um, you know, the real life impact of immigration and and migrants. And so, um, you know, I, I, I think that uh, Biden is, I, I agree with the, the political scientists that you're talking to, because I, I think Biden is going to have to move right a little bit on that issue for the general election. And, you know, will he tick off some of the, the left in his base? Yeah, a- absolutely he will. Um, but at the same time, you know, it may be a way to help neutralize what is likely to be, you know, Donald Trump's most potent issue. I think it's going to be really interesting to see how these particular issues play out. I want to real quick revisit your students in Iowa. When they interviewed Trump voters, what was their reaction? Because, you know, I see the interviews done um, ostensibly seriously by network news people. (laughs) And you've got these people who are who seem largely untethered to the same reality that the rest of us live in. And I was wondering, particularly for the Trump voters, what um, it, what did your students have to say about those interviews? I think what struck them was that the, the interviews were relatively issue-free, <laughs> that Trump voters just liked him. Um, they thought that he would be stronger on things like immigration and that he would be better uh, for the economy. We didn't hear any, you know, whacked out Q theories or anything like that. Uh, and, and I've seen some of those on TV, too. But it was basically, you know, this image of Trump as a strong man um, who is going to take care of the border. Um, he's going to be better for the economy. Um, you know, the basically regurgitating what Trump has told them. Um, so, you, you know, th- in terms of the economy, uh, you know, obviously um, the data points otherwise. And that was the other thing that that was interesting in Iowa. When you looked at the commercials and Trump was running this commercial, um, in, in, I, I don't know how much he spent, but just every, you know, every minute you saw a Trump commercial in Iowa. Uh, and he had this one commercial where he uh, it was about a 30 second spot. And he talked about having the strongest economy and the highest stock market in history. And then when you looked at the little um, Chiron at the bottom, the stock market number was from 2017. (laughs) It was six years old. Um, So but there was no because the Republicans were uh, reluctant to criticize him. um, And back then, you know, Haley really wasn't criticizing him. um, There was no counter 
you know, no counter advertising. So you saw these commercials for Trump, strong economy, highest stock market, lowest price for groceries and gas. But what you didn't see in those commercials was, you know, were, were things like the botched response to COVID, the hundreds of thousands of American deaths, the the January 6th, you know, insurrection, because DeSantis and Haley were not challenging that stuff on TV. And that's going to be the big difference, you know, for us as we get to a general election is that that view, that rose-colored view of this, you know, glossy mm-hmm. uh, Trump, Trump years, that's going to be heavily challenged. And, that, and that'll be the big difference for, for my students and for all of us. Well, I hope so, because... Um, I have become familiar with what is referred to as the low information voter. Um, the person who doesn't read about politics says they don't care about politics and who may actually cast a vote based on whatever commercial they saw the night before. God help us all. Um, I'm talking to DePaul journalist in residence, Chris Bury. He took a bunch of students to Iowa, but we have a lot more that we want to uh, talk to him about. You touched on something that I'm not ready to let go, this idea that um, DeSantis, who's of course gone now, and Nikki Haley, how they're trying to work these campaigns where they don't really crit- they're trying to be different than Trump, but not too different. You know, not I'm not going to criticize him uh, kind of different, but I'm different and I'm better. I want to talk about that whole strategy when Chris Beery and I come right back after the news. Joan Esposito, live, local and progressive on WCPT 820. Joining me is DePaul journalist in residence, Chris Beery, longtime network newsman before he took on this job. We were talking about Iowa and uh, New Hampshire. We were talking about Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis, especially how careful they've been to try to simultaneously set themselves apart from Donald Trump while not really criticizing Donald Trump. Chris, I don't know if you saw Nikki Haley's newest ad. Uh, They ran it on CNN today. And um, she's not going after Donald Trump. She is going after the fact that, oh, it looks like it's going to be Trump versus Biden and nobody wants that. They're both too old and we need somebody like younger and cooler. And that's Nikki Haley. So she still isn't saying that there's, you know, Trump didn't do this right or he didn't do that right. Do you think this is because she doesn't want to alienate that base? But is that a winning strategy? You know, the many Republican leaders have faced this this choice. Do I want to be a leader um, or do I want to follow? <laughs> and almost all of them have chosen to follow, uh, to follow the base instead of to lead the base. The one time in the last week or so where Haley was critical of Trump is when she talked about, and there was a commercial about this too, where she talked about, you know, the Trump speech where he confused her mm-hmm. with uh, Nancy Pelosi mm-hmm. uh, and said that Nikki Haley had uh, turned down the request for National Guards. So basically she, you know, for a while anyway, was accusing Trump of, you know, mental incompetence. Yeah, uh, but and, that's and not what she said. Very, she didn't say this guy isn't fit. He's not mentally competent. No, she didn't competent. say. She it. said he's. He was confused. He's. 
he's confused because it's like, I want to criticize him, but I don't want to criticize him too much. So I'll just stick with confused. Well, that was as probably as tough as she got. In Iowa, yeah. there was a, um, uh, an applause line that she used a lot, um, which was, quote, rightly or wrongly, chaos follows Donald Trump. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I almost wanted to, to laugh out loud because in my mind I had this picture of like um, a newspaper cartoon where Trump is, you know, walking along and behind him there is this sort of funnel cloud of chaos and debris. It's like following him? No. Mm-hmm. It, it, and, and it was there was no uh, attempt to give him any responsibility as if, as if chaos was this disembodied thing just following following Donald Trump around, right? Um, And I just found that so absurd. Um, And and then she used something similar, uh, a phrasing where she said, you know, we don't want the chaos of of Biden or Trump. Uh, And and trying to, you know, put them on the Uh same same plane when one of them is facing 91 criminal uh, indictments and the other is not. Um, So, yeah, that was awkward. And, And DeSantis, too. I mean, DeSantis... Um, in Iowa would not really uh, criticize Trump in, in any way. Um, he even you know, basically attacked the rule of law by saying that on the first day of his administration, he would fire the special counsel, Jack Smith. Um, he attacked the, um, the, 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 the case against Trump involving uh, the Washington, D.C. insurrection and said that Trump could never get a fair trial with, quote, a juror, a jury, you know, filled with Marxists. <laughs> I mean, this is, a, you know, one of the main candidates for president attacking the rule of law. Uh, which is something I don't think, you know, I've been covering politics, you know, since the early 80s. I don't ever re- recall multiple candidates attacking the rule of law in this country. It's that th- that that is something that's brand new. Yeah. Do you think <clears throat> that Nikki Haley is counting on the fact that people know she's different than Trump? So therefore, she doesn't actually have to go after Trump because it's like. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. You know I don't like that guy, but I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to be confrontational about it. Do you think she's counting on subtext here? And if so, isn't that dangerous if she's unless she unless she is just doing what she needs to do to position herself for either 2028 or to be the last man standing if for some reason Donald Trump keels over dead? No, I I think those are all really valid points. But now the question is, when Trump is attacking her impersonally and and viciously, as he did last night in his, you know, acceptance speech where he he threatened investigations um, against Nikki Haley. So after, you know, after the front runner has turned both barrels on you. Well, what is the point now of trying to thread this needle anymore? I mean, you're not going to get the Trump supporters, so exactly. you might as well you exactly. might as well go might as well go down swinging. Um, and it was interesting in um, you know both in our interviews uh, in Iowa when the students interviewed Haley supporters, many of them did say that they would support Haley, but they would not vote for Trump. And some of the the exit polling in New Hampshire, you know, showed much of the same thing. And of course, Haley did well uh, in New Hampshire among those who call themselves 
independence. But yeah, as of now, now, I mean, you, you've got Trump going after you. You've got um, the, the chair chairwoman of the Republican National Committee telling you to drop out um, everybody else. So what's the point now in trying to have it two ways? You might as well come out smoking. Uh, anyway, that that's the way I look at it. Yeah. <clears throat> How long do you think she'll stay in the race? I mean, she's got she's got a check, I believe, from Ken Griffin. She's got the Coke pack money behind her. Uh, what do you think? I mean, I well, personally, certainly since, since the Washington Post said that he w- he's very, very, very angry and irritated that she won't drop out. I say, you know, let's let's all write her a check so she stays in a little longer. Yeah, I mean, I think sort of uh, I think the South Carolina uh, primary is, you know, where she she wants to make some kind of a stand in her home state, um, even though Trump is you know way ahead. And the um, electorate in that state looks kind of more like Iowa than New Hampshire in the sense that white evangelicals um, have a really um you know, strong say. So that's uh, the 24th. Um, she's got the uh, the Nevada primary, which doesn't count for delegates. Uh, and she's skipping the Nevada caucus. Um, so I think South Carolina, I mean, conceivably, if she's within 10 or 12 points in South Carolina, she could continue on to Super Tuesday. Um, but, you know, m- my guess is South Carolina is going to be her Waterloo. Hmm. Because it's her home state, and if she doesn't do well right. there, it's an extra layer yeah. of humiliation? Yeah, I, I think for, you know, the fact that it's her home state, and if Trump, you know, cleans up with another 50% plus, um, and she can't win, or she can't even come close in her home state, I think it makes it very difficult for, you know, her to, to claim that she still has a chance. You know, unless... Uh, And this is possible, you know, unless um, she and her advisors and her donors fear that, um, you know, one of these criminal trials will start uh, before the election um, and that Trump's numbers somehow go down or, um, you know, she has to have going into the convention uh, in Milwaukee in July. If she has, you know, the second most delegates and Trump has been, let's say, convicted, we're going way out here on a limb. Yeah, uh, these are a lot of ifs, but I'm just thinking uh-huh. about reasons for her to stay in. And one of them is to keep accumulating delegates. So Iowa and New Hampshire were proportional. Right. So she picked up delegates in each of those states. Um, South Carolina is a kind of a combination of winner take all uh, for most of the delegates, but then each of the um, congressional delegation gets one delegate, uh, and it has to go with how things worked in that district. So she could conceivably still, even if she loses in South Carolina, pick up a few delegates. Uh, and then on Super Tuesday, if she stays in that long, she could pick up some more. That's the ol- only reason I can think for her going on beyond South Carolina is, oh, well, if Trump, you know, is really uh, in, in clearly in, in trouble in one of these criminal cases, then maybe I'm the one going into the convention with the second most delegates. OK, I think that she is hoping to stay in and she hopes something happens to him. But I don't think short of a major medical event, I don't care what 
he's convicted of. If he's convicted, he's going to appeal. I don't think there's any judge that will put him in jail until his appeal is heard. He is going to be out and about. And I'm sorry to say that with every conviction he racks up, as we've seen happen with every indictment, I think the people who love him are going to love him more because I think it is an utterly emotional. They have an utterly emotional, not um, not a logical or intellectual connection to this particular candidate. Well, I think the polls sort of bear that out, that among his supporters, that they would uh, support him even if he were a convicted criminal. On the other hand, uh, the same polls show that in any kind of a general election, um, many many Republicans say they would not vote for a convicted felon. Um, So, yeah, they've said a lot of things in the past. Yeah. And and they've uh, and they've when push comes to shove, they fold. They fold well, like little yeah. paper napkins. <laughs> well, you know, we'll, we'll we'll have to see. We have never, I mean, we have just never experienced this before, right? We have never had um, a major candidate for president under criminal indictment. I mean, we have 91 counts in four different jurisdictions. We've never seen anything like this. Neither have we seen, a, you know, a party rally around a, a candidate with this kind of uh, with this kind of baggage. So we are in a brand new place, unfortunately. Yes, they're a brand, brand new place. Uh, we're going to take a break. I'm talking to DePaul journalist in residence, Chris Beery. We'll be right back after this. Attention, everyone. Don't turn that dial. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. I love talking to Chris Beery. He is the DePaul University journalist in residence, but he's been a long time a network newsman. And before we wrap this up today, Chris, I want to shift gears and uh, focus local. Brandon Johnson, elected as a progressive, as a reformer, much like the former mayor of Chicago, Lori Lightfoot. And I'm not saying that the jury is out and that he doesn't have time to course correct. But in these early stages, he is kind of reminding me of the worst of Lori Lightfoot in that there seems to be a really um, concerted lack of transparency. There was the controversy of Paris Schutz uh, requesting by Freedom of Information Act some emails about conditions at migrant shelters. When the city was forced to give those emails up, they were so heavily redacted as to be useless. Luckily, Paris was able to get those emails the same emails unredacted from a community activist group. And after he did a story, then suddenly the city decided, oh, well, yeah, you can have the full emails after it basically didn't matter anymore. There has also been reporting by Shia Kapos that last Friday the mayor wanted to talk about the migrant crisis but didn't want to do so in a way that was subject to the Open Meetings Act. So instead of meeting with a large group of older people, he met with very small groups of older people to stay under the threshold for the Open Meetings Act. These things and others like this are making me very nervous, Mr. Bury. What do you think here? This seems to be the curse of the Chicago 
mayor, whoever is in the fifth floor office. I mean, going back to Rahm Emanuel, who kept secret the infamous uh, dash cam police dash cam footage of Laquan McDonald um, and fought a protracted court battle to keep the video out of the hands of the public until after he was reelected and then lost that uh, court battle. And as you mentioned, uh, Lightfoot started out on a progressive cooperative uh, note and uh, by the end of her term uh, had terrible relations with the press corps that uh, covers City Hall. And now for Brandon Johnson. And this really did uh, you know, begin back with the, the surge in, in migrants when Johnson, I, I don't want to say secretly, but very, very quietly, you know, had his administration sign a $20 million plus deal with Garda World Services to build that refugee camp. And the interesting thing about the emails that you mentioned is that, you know, they show that Johnson and his senior staff were warned about very likely environmental contamination at that Brighton Park spot and yet didn't uh, do anything about it until the state EPA came out and discovered, you know, toxic chemicals in the ground because of the zinc, you know, factory and other industrial, you know, things that had been at that site. Um, so, yeah, this is, I mean, since the migrant issue has developed, you know, Johnson seems to be, um, you know, more secretive, less transparent. Uh, you know, the emails that he would, redact, I looked at those redactions today, they were just ridiculous. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm really happy that um, Channel 11 got their hands, thanks to this activist, on the on the full unredacted emails. But I, I agree with you. It's it's concerning. I mean, the mayors, you know, Lightfoot, uh, Rahm, uh, you know, Johnson come in promising to be open and transparent. And once they, they get into office, they seem to do the opposite. Mm-hmm. And actually, with um, the contract, the $70 million contract you referenced, according to Alderman Scott Wagaspak, who I talked to yesterday, it's even, it's, even, it's even worse than a lack of transparency. He said he and a group of alders, um, when they realized this was in the works, said to the mayor that um, this should be something that is taken a closer look at because in the past, this company has um has had accusations that they just didn't do things the way they were supposed to be doing things they had faced charges before and um scott wagaspak said the older people were told you know yeah yeah you know well you know we're still looking into this when scott later found out that the truth was when they were told that the administration was going to look into it the contract had already been signed the contract had been signed. Nobody had been told about it. Alderman raised some concerns, and they were told, "Yeah, well, we're yeah, we're going to definitely look into that." When it was already a done deal, he said they he he said they lied to them to their faces. And even now, you know, we can see that Governor Pritzker um, is visibly and publicly annoyed. I mean, the other day he had a quote from his his press conference saying he found Mayor Johnson's lack of progress on the migrant shelters, you know, quote, uh, deeply troubling. Um, and, you know, when you have the, the, the governor um, taking public uh, shots at the mayor, um, it's not a good thing. And I, you know, I, I know Johnson responded by saying, well, the state's got the money to build something. Well, hold on. Let's back back up the tape, Mayor. 
you promised <laughs> that the city was going to have a plan um, to safely house thousands of migrants during a brutal Chicago winter, and you didn't have a backup plan when Brighton Park, you know, blew up. And the thing is, that now we've learned through, the, <clears throat> excuse me, through these emails that they've known about it since October. That's really troubling. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, in that situation where Brandon Johnson responded, well, you know, the state has a bunch of money. They can just go ahead and do this themselves. Governor, I don't know the the rules of the road here, um, but Governor Pritzker responded in saying we need to get the city. We need to get like city permission or the city to sign off on anything we would do. We can't just like barrel into Chicago and, you know, take a few buildings and, and rehab them on our own. There needs to be city sign-off. So I don't know where the truth lies, but um, I think that for a long time, those two have been trying to be very careful with each other publicly. But I do get the sense um, that Governor Pritzker shares some of our concerns, shall we say, about Brandon Johnson. Yeah, um, I think it started early, too. I mean, mm-hmm. it started even during the campaign when, you know, uh, Johnson said that he was, if if elected, that he was going to try to impose a new uh, transaction tax <clears throat> on all of the, you know, the automated financial deals at the Board of Trade and the options exchange and all that. And Pritzker said, uh, no, <laughs> you don't have the legal authority to do that. That's not going to happen. Um, and then it, 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 of course, didn't happen. But just to get back to the funding, I mean, I think we're where Brandon Johnson is right here is that, you know, he has called for more federal funding. Now, he took a bunch, uh, you know, of COVID money already to handle the migrants, which some aldermen are not happy about either. But, you know, this, you know, this has to be a federal issue because Texas is shipping migrants, um, you know, to Chicago and other cities and now, of course, the suburbs. So it seems to be that there has to be a bigger, you know, a bigger plan from the White House. That involves, you know, a combination of housing, language training, job training, or at least job um, preparation, because, you know, we we have most of these um, migrants are here legally applying for asylum. They're not illegal immigrants. And so since they are here legally for now, let's have a plan. Uh, You know, (laughs) let's get the city, city, state and the federal government to actually have a comprehensive way to deal with this, because. Um, you know, I think it is tough for cities and, and, and the suburbs. Look at the, the trouble the suburbs are having uh, coping with, with this. They they just don't have the resources. So what do they do? They put the migrants on a bus to Chicago. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's um, <laughs> it's a mess. Um, Chris, it is always a pleasure to talk to you. You um, bring so much thought and intelligence to our discussions. And I really want to thank you for your time. Well, thank you, and let me be uh, an early uh, greeter. Uh, happy birthday wishes uh, for you <laughs> on your big day tomorrow. Why, thank you very much. I appreciate that. Okay. <laughs> very kind of you to say so. Um, we are going to take a break. We're going to be back with more right after this. Don't turn that dial. A dangerous mistake to make. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. Chris Tomlinson is a columnist for the Houston Chronicle and the San Antonio Express News and has recently written a piece called The Texas GOP's 
border crisis plan includes secession, surrender, and stunts instead of solutions. We welcome Chris to our radio show. Hello, Chris. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me on, Jen. So let's talk about this most recent article. Um, I'm surprised and pleased to see someone actually inside the Texas borders seeing things the way that they look to the rest of us who uh, sit outside of Texas and look at Texas and try to figure out what the heck is going on there. So uh, walk us through this, if you would. Sure. Uh, you know, there are more uh, common sense people in Texas than uh, the rest of the world knows, um, <laughs> as I like to tell people. Um, you know, there's no beating around the bush. We have a, a crisis on the border. Um, you know, thousands of people uh, seeking refuge uh, for any number of reasons, uh, you know, fearing um collapsed governments, oppressive governments, uh, fleeing crime, uh, or just simply wanting a better life for their families. And so, you know, with any situation like this, where you have mass migration at a border, um, whether it's here or anywhere else in the world, there are pull and push factors. And, you know, no one seems to be interested in getting to the bottom of it. Talk to me about Congressman Chip Roy. Uh, he is um, an interesting guy, Chris. Yes, Chip Roy is uh, one of our more, uh, shall we say, colorful uh, uh-huh. representatives. That's a good word. I like that. Yes. Um, you know, he was uh, Ted Cruz's chief of staff. Uh, before that, he was uh, instrumental to getting Ted Cruz elected in Texas. Uh, he looked like a typical, you know, uh, IBM uh, mid-level executive, and then he decided to grow his beard out and become a congressman and and take up some of the um, become one of the one of the loudmouths, you know, in in Congress. He's uh, one of the most uh, outspoken members of the Freedom Caucus, and he is very interested and constantly talking about secession. Is, I mean, is he serious or is this hyperbole like, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene talks about space lasers uh, to get, you know, her 15 minutes of fame in the news cycle. Is he serious about this or is this something that he does to get attention? He, he talks about secession because we have a secessionist movement in Texas. Um, and they are, you know, very hardcore Republican uh, primary voters. Um, and he's always flirted with them, uh, just as his boss, Ted Cruz, has. Um, you know, he's never come out and said, I support secession. Um, but he says that President Biden's uh, migration policies are a cause for Texas to consider seceding from the union. And that's more than just words, because we did have a serious attempt to have uh, a secession question added to the Republican primary vote uh, coming up in March. So, you know, it seems like a joke, but, you know, it could become more and more uh, mainstream as uh, the political rhetoric becomes more um, distasteful. Um, 
you say there is a measure on the ballot about this or there was talk of putting one on the ballot? Uh, the Texas nationalist movement uh, claimed to have enough signatures, and they, uh, the Texas GOP rejected the uh, ballot question. And then um, the Texas nationalists lost in front of the Supreme Court. But this is a it is a um, it is a platform in for the Republican Party of Texas to consider secession and to eventually have a vote on it. Um, it's, it's been a part of the conversation here for the last, well, basically since Trump was elected. Hmm. Um, the other thing I want to ask you about, because it does seem even pulling back from secession, it does seem almost as if the state of Texas really wants to get in to a conflict, an armed conflict with the rest of the government. I mean, there was that situation recently where federal border patrol agents were denied access to an area that they used as an overflow holding area. They were literally stopped from going in. Um, they just, uh, Texas lost in the Supreme Court, the DOJ, um, now is, is, is given the power to get rid of some of the razor wire. And I saw on CNN this morning, that along certain parts of the Texas border, Texas is adding more razor wire. It is not taking down the razor wire that was found uh, to not have the support of the courts. Uh, it is now adding to the problem. It almost seems like a deliberate effort to try to inspire armed conflict. Is that how it looks to you? Oh, you know, the, the part of the, the, the stretch of the border you're talking about is Shelby Park. It's, uh, it's the main municipal park for the small town of Eagle Pass. And, you know, I recently said that's going to be Greg Abbott's Fort Sumter. Um, he is not pulling the troops back. He is doubling down on the amount of razor wire. Um, he, Texas National Guard has not granted uh, Customs and Border Protection access to that park. Um, and, you know, the Department of Homeland Security has given Texas until Friday morning to uh, to open up access. So, you know, the governor was tweeting out videos of Texas National Guard with uh, riot gear, you know, clubs, um, shields, helmets, marching to the border to defend Shelby Park, um, presumably against Customs and Border Protection. So, yes, I think absolutely the governor is trying to provoke some kind of confrontation. Um, and, you know, it's it's really kind of uh, shocking. We haven't seen anything like this since uh, George Wallace uh, tried to stop the, uh, segrega- uh, the desegregation of the University of Alabama. What do you see happening here? I mean, it seems like a, a really dangerous game of chicken being played. Do you really think he wants armed conflict? And does that do you really think that that would be popular in Texas? 
You know, with his voter, and now let's be clear, you know, Governor Abbott has always been a state's rights, um, you know, advocate. Uh, he, when he was attorney general, he bragged that his job was to, was to sue the federal government every day. Um, this is something that is very popular with his base. I would not say it's popular with most Texans, but certainly among his supporters who are also, you know, Donald Trump supporters, this is something they're excited about. Um, the Biden administration can de-escalate this. They can just tie it up in the courts. Um, you know, they'll send a border protection uh, agent to try to enter Shelby Park or try to cut some wire on Friday morning. And if the Texas National Guard gets in the way, then I'm sure they'll retreat and avoid an armed conflict. Um, and just as the case was with the University of Alabama, um, I think the solution is for President Biden to federalize the Texas National Guard, place them under the command of um, the Department of Defense, uh, Secretary Austin, and uh, then they'll have to withdraw. Uh, legally, the Texas National Guard will not be able to engage in any of this activity once that happens. And that's something I'm not really familiar with how these uh, National Guard units are structured or how they work. That could happen sort of like if you're building a road and there's a house in the way you can uh, claim it by eminent domain. They can sort of claim the Texas National Guard and say, you know, you're now under the auspices of uh, Lloyd Austin. Oh, absolutely. This goes back to before World War One. Um, the idea, you know, before then, every state had its own National Guard, and it was not professional, barely uniformed, and poorly trained. Um, so, you know, before World War One, Congress decided that the National Guard would have a dual mission, a dual role. Uh, 99% of the time, they fall under the command of the governor. Uh, but they are trained, funded, uniformed, and equipped um, as regular U.S. forces uh, so that they have the same rank, the same training, the same tactics. Um, during the Iraq War, when, we, uh, when the United States needed additional troops, um, the president would activate the National Guard, federalize them. And at that point, they become the federal troops, just like an active duty U.S. soldier. And they can be deployed overseas or anywhere in the world. Um, and that has primacy over their, um, their duties and um, chain of command under the state and under the governor. Wow. Um, it is... Um uh, it's a much more dangerous situation than I I was aware of just from what I had read in a lot of the mainstream media. We, um, Chris, we have a caller who wants to join our conversation. Uh, Paul is calling in from Seattle, Washington. Paul, you're on with me and Chris Tomlinson. Go ahead. Yeah, and Chris is absolutely correct. The Constitution says that the president shall be the commander-in-chief of the U.S. Army and Navy, and the militias of the several states. doesn't even mention the governor and the governors of the states in the Constitution, so he's absolutely correct about that. But as for, I guess, the, the, the topic or what came up as the question, because I was kind of working here, is, is Texas wants to secede again, uh, again? Because isn't it the uh, special sovereignty 
status that they became a state under uh, that's the isn't that the uh, the premise that that they're that they were somehow uh, under some special sovereignty and um and is that the reason that uh they're thinking that uh, I, I know there's a case the supreme court case called Cohen's v virginia where john marshall said well whatever special sovereignties you thought you had in virginia that you gave up when you became a state a, a part of the union of the united states but i'd point out that for like 50 years the the, the, the West Coast, the Washington, Oregon, and in California, there has been this sentiment called Ecotopia, that we three states could join Canada and be part of British Columbia. So, I mean, culturally, for instance, uh, I know, isn't anybody here in Washington State, in Seattle, that really thinks that Iowa means anything? <laughs> I mean, we really don't care what they think about Donald Trump, and I know they don't really care what we liberals in Washington State think, neither. But, you know, what's interesting is if you drive down the West Coast, uh, it all seems kind of like homogeneous. But growing up in, in Michigan, being in the Midwest, and especially if you drive through states out in the east, it's so much more provincial that when you cross state lines, like from Michigan into Ohio, they're like, you're in Ohio now. Things are different here. We don't take kind of the strange. Yeah, I mean, I, like, think, I think the – I mean, I, I, I agree with you. I think the um, – I think there there are very deep roots here in Texas, and 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 Texans, I think more so than any people from any other state, are, are prideful and boastful to the point of being a, a laughing stock to most Americans. Um, and I am also guilty of that. My family has been here for for generations. Um, but to to your question, you know, the Texas Nationalists, their uh, legal argument is is not particularly sophisticated. It is based on that principal idea of when Texas joined the United States uh, as a sovereign nation, uh, it was given special privileges. But all of that was wiped out by the Civil War. Um, we fought a war over secession. Um, it, the, the, that, the question of any nation, of any state legally seceding from the Union was settled in 1865. And any discussion about secession now is uh, very fringe, but that doesn't mean that, you know, you don't have people with guns who uh, occasionally take up the matter. Um, about 20 years ago, we had a group of nationalists uh, take over a compound and, and um, have a standoff with the FBI for almost a month. Um, this, this thing, kind of thing still happens. Texans really, <clears throat> my sense is, and I've, I've had good friends that have uh, lived in Texas, and there's this real sense of, there's a sense of self that you don't always get in a different state. You know, we're sort of like we're different and we're, we're proud of ourselves. We're like nobody else. We're Texas. Uh, is that part that that attitude part of what feeds into Greg Abbott doing some of this stuff, Chris? Oh, absolutely. I've I've written uh, two New York Times bestsellers about uh, Texas history and mythology, and how um, how this myth this mythology around uh, the fight for Texas independence, the nine years that Texas was an uh, independent nation, uh, the secession from the Union to join the Confederacy, and what happened afterward. Um, you know, most of what we still teach children in school about Texas history is fanciful and incomplete. 
And as a result, we end up with this um, Texas chauvinism uh, that makes it possible for people like Greg Abbott to uh, to be popular and and, um, you know, cause the trouble he's causing right now. Here in Illinois, where we have been the recipient of some of Mr. Abbott's buses of uh, Venezuelan migrants, um, we see Greg Abbott as somebody who is only interested in political stunts, wants to embarrass Democrats or Joe Biden if he possibly can, and um, <clears throat> somebody who really doesn't care about the people that are on those buses and what happens to them. How is he perceived by people in Texas? Is there any of that view in Texas? You know, let's be very clear that there are so many people coming across the border in that Eagle Pass Del Rio area. And that is because of the geography. It uh, makes sensing difficult. The, there's not a wall. Uh, the, the river is relatively shallow. Um, there are lots of reasons why that's a main corridor for the migrants to come across. You know, the, the Eagle Pass is a city of 29,000 people. And at one point, we had 8,000 migrants a day coming across in uh, the Eagle Pass area. Uh, there is no way we can take care of all those people in Texas. We've, um, you know, Greg Abbott is proud of the fact that he has bused 100,000 migrants across the country, not only to Chicago, but to Denver and to Boston and New York. Um, and frankly, that's necessary. We need help providing the humanitarian care for these desperate people who've crossed the border and we can't send them back immediately. Um, however, you know, the governor has also chosen to only send these people to democratically controlled cities. He's chosen to drop them off in the middle of the night without warning. Uh, when a aid group tried to start monitoring when the buses were leaving and communicate with the migrants so they could have, you know, aid workers ready um, in the city, uh, that was their destination, uh, Abbott would reroute the buses and change their schedules to make it more difficult for the cities to accept and support these migrants. So, yes, there's a level of cruelty here that um, in the execution of this busing that is, is really unfortunate. Um, but the idea that we can't take care of all those people here, uh, that, that's just truth. In a situation like that, I've seen state governments go to Washington and, you know, there is a Republican-controlled Congress, you know, and regardless of the draconian measures that the Republicans want about, you know, closing the borders and how people should be treated, just go to the government and say, you know what, this is the situation. We want to build more facilities. We need to hire more people. And um, we need X amount of dollars. And turn it into an industry. Turn it into a, a way for more Texans to have adequate, good-paying jobs monitoring these things. I just, I just don't understand why? I mean, we've had people, we had one busload of migrants that was dropped off during our recent 
a horrible cold wave and the people had no coats and some of them were in flip flops and they were just literally dropped on a street and the bus drove away. I mean, I don't understand. I understand the problem. I understand wanting to draw attention to it. I understand wanting more money and help, but I don't understand the casual cruelty. Well, you know, the casual cruelty comes from seeing a political benefit to being cruel, you know, and the GOP leadership has rallied so much hate against um, these human beings who are in desperate need of help that, you know, they're not, you know, the, 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 the politicians don't see them as human or even uh, requiring basic necessities. Uh, you're absolutely correct. President Biden has asked for $14 billion to help address this problem. Uh, there are negotiations going on in Congress. But then we get a, uh, a representative from Texas uh, named Troy Nels from the Houston region who, um, who says, I am not interested in any kind of deal because it might help President Biden win re-election. And so he's going to oppose any additional money, any change in the law, any effort to make things better, because they want to continue to have these desperate people suffer and be a um, and be a political pawn. You know, it's it, we, that's that's the stunts uh, that I talk about in my column. Yeah. Even Dan Crenshaw recently, um, who's a Republican from Texas, said something about, you know, my colleagues don't want a solution to the migrant crisis because they want to continue using it as a talking point and they want to continue to be able to campaign on it. So I know that it is not universally supported, even in Texas. Um, and, um, you know, the day, you know, I'm trying to talk about Dan Crenshaw as somebody that, uh, is somebody that's making sense. I don't know for this radio station. That's, that's uh, shows how far we've come, Chris. Well, you know, I, it's also very much a question of basic, you know, life experience and humanity, um, you know, Representative Crenshaw was a Navy SEAL. Uh, he served all over the world. He's seen refugee crises. He's seen, he's seen this kind of suffering before. I think he understands that this is, um, that we're, we're talking about people. You know, we're not talking about pawns. Um, and, you know, I highlight Troy Nels and Chip Roy, but, you know, there are bipartisan uh, politicians, Republicans and Democrats, who, who do want to solve this. And, and they're working on it. I just don't hold out much hope for it. Well, I do. I it's because it's something's got to give, and uh, and I and I hope that um, it, things may not be perfect, but I certainly hope enough is done so that in the very near future um, things improve. Uh, one last note, Chris: um, if Texas wants to secede. Uh, could you ask the powers that be if they would take Florida with them? Because um, that, that, I think I could sell that deal. You know, um, I will, uh, I'll mention it to uh, the Texas Nationals and, and see what they have to say. I mean, everyone likes a good beach. Yeah, yeah. 
I mean, that's um, I think I think I don't think we'd have a civil war over that. We'd, I think we'd say, well, you know, let's do a let's have a task force to study this situation. Um, Chris, uh, sorry to be silly here at the end, but thank you uh, for joining us. I, I love your writing. And oh, by the way, if you want to read uh, Chris's books, one is Forget the Alamo, The Rise and Fall of an American Myth. And the other one is Tomlinson Hall, the remarkable story of two families who share the Tomlinson's name, one white, one black. New York Times bestselling author Chris Tomlinson, columnist for the Houston Chronicle and the San Antonio Express News. Thank you for joining us. I, I find your writing fascinating and please um Copy me on what you're doing anytime, because this is something that we need to keep talking about. Thank you, Joan. I definitely will. Uh, And thanks for having me on. You're very welcome. Uh, That is going to do it for us today. Uh, Driving at Home with Patty Vasquez is up next. I will see you tomorrow at uh, 2.30. No, 2 o'clock. Well, you know what? It's my birthday. Maybe I'll make it 2.30. Andy, uh, maybe you can get somebody to fill in that first half hour. Um, tomorrow, I think I should get 30 minutes off for my birthday. Um, I'll see you at 2 o'clock tomorrow. I'm just losing my mind over here. Have a great evening. Stay safe, my friends, and good night.